Well, good morning. So good to hear, uh, see you on this Sunday morning. We've had just an incredible week of weather. I mean, my house doesn't have air conditioning, so the beauty of 50, 60 degrees at night is just incredible. I don't mind it, that whole cold thing in the morning because I don't even want to get out of bed that way, and that's just the blessing of life, yeah? So I hope you've had a good week and you're enjoying your summer so far. Um, we're in the midst of uh, a series on worship. And because I'm not really creative at titling my sermons, it's just called Worship. That's the series title. And so last week, I want to catch you up, and then we're in week two, and I'll I'll just hit right into where we're going to go. Last week, we looked at the very idea of what worship is. And we looked at Isaiah chapter 6, which is this vision in which God calls Isaiah to follow him and to serve him. But the vision is a vision of Isaiah seeing this throne room, and he sees a king, the Lord Almighty, And around him are are seraphim, angels, and they have six wings, and they're described, and they they feel real otherworldly when you read the text. And the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. As we looked at Isaiah chapter 6, we saw that worship is real simple. Worship is responding to the revelation of God, that God makes himself known to us, and worship is how we respond to what we know about him. In Isaiah chapter 6, it really summarizes very well what the content of our worship is. We worship God, and we worship Him specifically because He is holy and He is glorious. Holy is just a word that means unique. In fact, the only thing that can really sustain or handle the load of our worship is something that is unique, one of a kind. And God is completely unique. There is nothing like Him. We see this in his attributes. And some of his attributes we can uh, mimic in incomplete ways. God is love, and we can act in loving ways. But there's all kinds of ways and attributes that God has. They're called his incommunicable attributes. They're attributes that we can't even approach or mimic in any way. God is all present. He is everywhere at all times. It kind of freaks you out every so often if you think about it. God is all-knowing. There's nothing he doesn't know. He is all-powerful. He is completely and utterly righteous and just. And so there's all kinds of ways that we cannot even compare to God, but God is one of a kind. And because he is one of a kind, he has the capability of handling our worship. And we place our worship on all kinds of other things at times. Beauty, money, you know our minds, our rational intelligence. But none of those things can sustain them. Because no matter how smart you are, even if you're Bill Gates, there's a Steve Jobs. No matter how beautiful you are, even if you're Audrey Hepburn, there's always a Grace Kelly. And no matter uh, how much money you have, there's always someone who has a lot too. You can only worship God because you were created and meant to because he is one of a kind. But second, we see that he is glorious. The word glory just refers to his importance. Not only is one of a kind unique, but he is of supreme importance. Now, as we continue in this series in worship, last week was just an introduction in which we define worship. Over these next five weeks, we're going to look at five really different eras in the history of the world and the world to come. And we're going to look at what worship was like during those times. We're going to look at what they did and how they did it. But we start this morning right from the beginning in a sermon I've entitled Worship Remembered by looking at what worship was meant to be from the very beginning. What worship was meant to be when God created this whole world 
and then he put man and woman into a garden, both of us in the image of God, and he created us in perfection to perfectly relate to him, and we just need to remember that. Now, why do we need to remember that? I was thinking about it this week, and I was thinking, imagine there was this cataclysmic event. We could call it, uh, maybe you were just lived a real sheltered life. Maybe you lived in an area where you never learned about technology. Maybe there's a nuclear holocaust or a zombie apocalypse, all right? I just throw in the zombie apocalypse because that doesn't come up in church real often, you know? <laughs> church should be fun every so often. So, but imagine, like, all of a sudden, you're this mechanic, and you've been put into this environment where... Everything that you, we have in this world, all of our high-speed internet and all this, tra- you know, high-speed trains, saw a lot of those in China, all this stuff, and we've lost all of our knowledge of this technological world. And imagine you come out of that shell for whatever reason you were there, and there's still, like, vestiges of what that world was like, but you don't have knowledge of what they are. Lost, the TV show Lost kind of had stuff like this every so often. Um, And imagine you come out, and you are mechanical, and so you have some understanding of engines, but you don't know what a train is, you don't know what an airplane is, you don't know how things function, you just have this basic information. And imagine you come out of your bomb shelter, or wherever the hole you were hiding in, and you've come out with this basic mechanical knowledge, and you find an airplane, just a little small Cessna, not not one of these big jobs, just a small Cessna. And you see it has an engine, and you're looking at this airplane, and you're a little bit mechanical. I'm not, but you are. And you finally are able to get it running, but you have no idea about how this airplane is supposed to function, its its original intent. And you're able to piece it back together, and you're mechanical, so you get it running. And so you think you've discovered what the airplane is meant to do, and so you just get it running, and you slowly drive it around land, and you haul like water and stuff and people in it. You see, an airplane is meant to fly, but if you don't know its original, its original intent, you may only experience a partial, partial portion of what it was designed to do. And so worship is the same way. If we don't understand how it was originally meant to function from the beginning, then we won't understand what it is and what it is meant to accomplish in our lives. We can still, of course, enter into it in a small, incomplete way. And you know, the, the truth is, no matter how much we understand about it, our entering into worship will always be somewhat incomplete. Because no matter how much God has revealed himself to us in his word, he hasn't revealed everything there is to know about himself in his word. Even if, I spent a lot of time in this in Bible college and seminary, and I feel like I'm not even close to mastering the content of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. But even if I could, I love the ending of John, which says, These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. But if we were to write down, if I were to write down everything that Christ did and said, the world could not contain the books that were written, would be written. And so this doesn't tell us everything there is to know about God, but the greater our understanding we get of what worship was meant to be from the beginning, the closer we will understand how we are to enter into worship now, thousands and however many years after God created the world and all that is in it. And so this morning, as we look at the text of Scripture, I just want to take you back 
to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to look at two chapters this morning. They're not intensely long, and they're intensely interesting. And so I'm going to read all of chapter 2 and chapter 3, and I'm going to make some observations, and I'm going to try to bring you into the reality of what worship was from the very beginning. Worship remembered. Genesis chapter 2 is really easy to find if you're using our blue book. It's right at the beginning on page number 2. doesn't happen real often, but that's real easy. And this, Genesis chapter 2, is actually the second account of the creation narrative. We have another account that takes place in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, through Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. But in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4, we get an account of the creation of the world. And in Genesis 3, we get an account of how it all went wrong. And I want you to be reminded or perhaps see it for the first time. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, follow along as I read it aloud. This is the account of the heavens and the earth, when they were created, when God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no, there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into him the no- breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he had put the man he had formed The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food in the middle of the garden and where the tree was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil A river watering the garden flowed from Eden From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. Precious materials. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth side is the Euphrates. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden to work it and to care for it. And the Lord God commanded man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, then you will certainly die. The Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. And the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he called them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. 
You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of them both were opened and they realized they were naked So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman put you here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity Between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children, and your desire will be your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it. All the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. I took a lot of time to read that, and I did that for a couple of reasons. A lot of debate surrounds these little passages. And it seems like these have become, uh, I don't know, like points of controversy between the church and our culture, specifically surrounding the historical nature of these accounts in light of recent scientific discoveries. And so the question comes up, should these accounts be uh, read as recording history or not? This morning, I'm just going to acknowledge that that's a debate and I'm going to skip the whole thing. I'm not even going to address that. Because the focus of what we can agree on is that these accounts are extremely symbolic. Now, something can be both literal and symbolic, historically true and symbolic. And if that's the case, that's the case. The question is not, are these historical or are they not? The question really revolves around, what is this text actually trying to say? Some people seem to pose that a high view of Scripture would demand that we read these accounts as literally and historically true. That is a challenge for a number of reasons, but that is not actually the question. A high view of Scripture is not 
imposing what we think it says on Scripture and saying it has to say this to have a high view. The high view of Scripture is reading the text for whatever it intends to say and seeing in it what it means, which is intensely, intensely difficult. But skipping the whole literal historical debate or questions, let us just focus in on what Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 are trying to do. And Genesis chapter 2 and 3 are trying to teach us a major, major point. And it is this, and it's all about worship, that God's original intent in creation was that humanity would live with God in paradise. God's original intent in creation is that man, humanity, would live with God in paradise. We could summarize it in another way, simply with one word, communion or fellowship. Communion. That is what worship originally was meant to look like in creation, before sin, living with God, and we could even add serving God in paradise. So let me develop those ideas for a moment. First, living with God. We see in chapter 3, verse 8, some beautiful, beautiful imagery. And the imagery is this. We see it in a negative way, but the imagery is that every day in the Garden of Eden, God would come to man and woman, and he would have a little walk with them. It even goes on to describe it in a little more narrative detail. He says he would walk with them in the cool of the day, you know, because nobody likes to be overly hot, and he would walk with them. This idea of walking carries more than just the idea that you, you know, took so many steps. The doctors tell us, I think we're supposed to take 10,000 a day. I mostly get that in. And, but that's not the idea. The idea of walking here is not about a certain amount of steps, but it is of fellowship, of spending time with. Perhaps you've spent time with someone and you can spend time with them and you can spend time with them, you know? Maybe you have teenagers and you've ridden in the car with your teenager, and if that teenager doesn't want to talk, that's like a brick wall, yeah? I don't have teenagers. My oldest is nine. I'm sure I'll get there one day. But you can spend time with someone, and you can spend time with someone. What Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 is teaching is that God walked with and lived with humanity when everything was as it was meant to be. He spent time with us. I've always envisioned chapter 3, verse 8 as kind of carrying this idea of God in the nicest part of the day. It was Eden, so I would assume it was all pretty nice. Just walking with, sharing hopes, sharing dreams, sharing their loves and their, their desires, laughing and talking and walking alongside each other. In Eden, we were meant for this kind of communion with God, and it wasn't difficult to attain to. It just came naturally, and it came not only in a spiritual, emotional sense, but it came in a physical sense. There was God walking right beside us. Now it can be so difficult, can it? I've had times in my life where it seems like God is very present with me, and I've had times when it doesn't seem like he is at all. And sometimes I can diagnose those feelings on the basis of my actions and think, well, of course God wouldn't feel close because I was not living in line with his will. 
But there's been many, 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 I added four for emphasis, times, when I'm living in God's will as much as I know, and I still don't feel the emotional connection to God that I wish I did. Do you know that the Bible never promises us that we will have in this life a emotional connection to God that fills us with warm fuzzies? He doesn't. I'm not saying I don't want that. Who wouldn't long for an emotional connection with God that is all satisfying? We are promised that we will have that one day, but we are not promised that right now. And so I've known times of both, but in Eden, in paradise, one of the, the characteristics of worship was a natural, easy, not have to work for, relationship or communion with God. The second idea that we see developed in these two chapters is the idea that we would serve God. Now, this takes a little development because serving God, we generally think of like we're going to work for him. And we see this developed in chapter 2, verse 15, where God says he put man in the garden to cultivate it and to work it. But we know a couple things about this. This serving of God is, has something to do with the ability for us to feel uh, emotional satisfaction and purpose in our lives. It didn't have to do with intense and hard labor. In fact, we know that's not the case because if we look at chapter 3, verse 17 and following, we notice that one of the results of the fall after sin is that our work would be laborious and unsatisfying at times. Have you ever worked in a job where you feel like, man, I just, I'm doing, the, I'm doing it, but man, I wish, I wish I found this a little more satisfying. My kids got to eat and I got to pay my rent or my mortgage, but I wish I felt a little more fulfilled. I can't take the time to develop this idea completely, but I'll just leave it at this. Scholars believe Many scholars believe that this idea of serving God in Eden was had less to do with simple serving than it had to do with resting and satisfaction in knowing that you were doing God's will. This idea of rest, of enjoying and caring, but not in a way that is laborious and unsatisfying, but in a way that is fulfilling, satisfying, and restful. The third idea that we see developed in Genesis 2 and 3, about God's original intent for worship in creation was that the environment for this worship would take place in paradise. The name for it here is the Garden of Eden. God had created an entire world, but in the center of the world, he created a garden that he planted, and we're told that he placed man within that garden, the Garden of Eden. Now, what was Eden like? Whether it's symbolic or literal or both, doesn't matter, but the text describes Eden, and it describes it in a number of ways. First, Eden was a place that was full, uh, full of rivers, right? It says it in chapter 10, or chapter 2, verse 10 through 14, it describes at length these four rivers, uh, Pashan, what are they? Pashan, um, Gihon, Tigris, and the Euphrates. These rivers flowed out of Eden and gave prosperity and fertility to the entire region. But they sourced in Eden. The symbolism here is of fertility. The second thing we see developed in paradise is in verse chapter 2, 11, and 12. And it is the idea of great riches. 
You see uh, the languages of gold that flows through the land and uh, onyx and an aromatic resin. We don't know too much what that means, but Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 13 describes Eden again in the riches, of the, uh, the riches that were there by describing their precious stones. And you can look it up. I think there's six or seven precious stones like jasper and emerald and ruby. And they flowed throughout the entire land. And the symbolism is this idea that in Eden, in paradise, it was a land full of prosperity and riches. The third idea that's developed under paradise is trees. The whole area was full of trees. Trees of every kind. I have no idea what kinds they were but trees of every kind. And there were trees that were just simply good to look at, and there were trees that bared fruit that were fantastic to eat. I love both of those kinds of trees. We have a tree in our backyard, a dogwood tree, and for about a week or two, I think it's around mid to late April, it is stunning. Eden would have been filled with these kinds of trees. I remember when I was in Texas, I love those. I think they're called crepe myrtles. I love those trees. They're just beautiful, but it was, it was also fill, filled with trees that you could eat the fruit, you know? And I I would guess they were like Georgia peaches. That, to me, is the highlight of any tree fruit, a Georgia peach. I would move to Georgia practically just to eat the peaches. But I'm here for the long haul, you see. But in, in the center of the garden, there were two additional trees that are specifically named the tree of life. And apparently we find out the tree of life existed because if you ate of it, you would never die. And there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one thing in the entire garden that God said, that's off limits. One of my favorite preachers, Andy Stanley, always says, when God had everything exactly the way he wanted it, there was only one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Eden gets other descriptions, doesn't it? It was full of animals. In fact, it was full of animals that Adam named even before God had taken and uh, created his helper, his uh, corresponding partner, Eve, woman. We see that Eden had a helper. In Eden, we were not meant to be alone. We had a corresponding helper, a partner, a husband and a wife. And so Adam lived in Eden with his wife, and he was intensely and completely satisfied with her. And we get what is in the Bible, the very first poem, right? Chapter uh, 2, verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. We see in this the joy that Adam has in his helper, in his partner, Eve. And we see in Eden there was almost complete and utter freedom. Adam and Eve were free to do anything they wanted. There was only one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When God had everything exactly as he wanted it, there was perfect communion, living with God in a physical and spiritual sense in absolute paradise. But everything went wrong. And of course, we read about that. And so as Milton kind of describes, he titles his book, Paradise Lost, paradise was lost. And it was lost due to mankind's willful rebellion, their choice. Because in the Garden of Eden, in paradise, God created humanity to be free. 
And through the temptation, and I do not have time to develop all the snake symbolism, but in paradise, the serpent comes and tempts Adam and Eve, distorting the words of God, and Eve and Adam choose to rebel against God. And at this time, at this rebellion, the communion with God is what is lost. Yes, Eden, because we see in chapter, 20, or chapter 3 in verses uh, 21 through 24 that God takes away their leafy garments. He gives them garments of animal skins representing the death that sin brought about. And he places, he kicks them out of Eden and he places uh, two cherubim or angels to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden so that they would not be able to eat from the Tree of Life. And we also get this weird language in verse 24 that there was a flaming sword that flashed back and forth across the entrance, kicking them out of the Garden of Eden. But the real loss and the real story of Genesis chapter 2 and 3 is not that they lost the ability to eat the great peaches from the fruit or the ability to see the beautiful dogwoods. The real loss was the loss of natural, immediate access to the fellowship with God himself, which is what worship is by definition. But paradise was lost as a result of rebellion. Now, ever since that time, God has like been on the move, seeking to restore what was lost, paradise, And God's intent ever since we have rebelled has been to restore paradise where we can return to living with God, to the communion with God that has been lost. And this morning, uh, I'm going to take you and I'm going to try to help establish and show you how through three periods, God is trying to restore that and he ultimately will. I'm going to take the period immediately after when God helps them to build a temple, and then I'm going to take the period, and I'm going to compare that against the period that is to come, the new heavens and new earth, and then I'm going to show us how Christ bridges that gap in the here and the now. But what you may not be aware of is that ever since man has been kicked out of Eden, the pattern for worship has followed of God trying to restore paradise so that we can live with God again forever. If I had more time, I would bore you because I could talk about this forever, so I don't have a lot of time. But I'm going to show you three things, symbolism, three symbols that exist both in the temple and in the new heavens and new earth that show us that God is trying to restore Eden. First, the temple or the tabernacle compared to the new heavens and new earth. The first thing of symbolism we see in both is a river. In Psalm chapter 46, verses 4 and 5, the psalmist says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. For God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. The imagery here is is that there is a river, here I think it's symbolic, that flows out of the temple and it makes glad this people or the city of God. In Ezekiel 47, which you should really write down and go home and read this afternoon just for the beauty of the imagery, we are told that one day out of the temple of God, there will flow a river. It will come out of the east and it will flow out from the altar of God. And as it flows out, it will go as far as the Dead Sea, it says, 
And everywhere the river goes, the climate or the, uh, the, arid, the arid desert will be turned to a lush paradise. The symbolism here is that from the very temple, there flows a river in which paradise is restored. We see the exact same thing occur in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, when, God, when the apostle John describes the new heavens and new earth, when he says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, the new city, the new Jerusalem that's been restored. The second symbolism that we see from the Garden of Eden that is reconstructed for us in the temple is the idea of riches. If you were to go home today and you were to read 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 2 through 9, you would see all of the wealth that the Solomon's temple displayed, gold and bronze and all kinds of precious gems. In fact, even the priests themselves, their garments were adorned with precious stones. The idea here is this recreating of the riches of Eden, of paradise. And we see the same thing exist in the new heavens and the new earth. When in Revelation 21, 10 through 21, the Apostle John goes at great lengths to describe what that new city will look like. And perhaps you remember the streets of gold. Most of us have heard of the streets of gold. But read Revelation 21, 10 through 21. You'll see it's not just the gold. It's all the precious stones that make up all of the wealth and the prosperity of the paradise that will be the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. The third symbolism that we see is found in the trees, the tree of life. <coughs> in the temple, Moses describes God's instructions to build a lampstand that would go in the entrance as soon as you entered into the actual temple proper. It was a lampstand, and the lampstand was made of pure gold, and it was formed into a tree. It was actually an almond tree. And in the almond tree, there were lamps, and those lamps were never, ever, ever go out, representing the tree of life that you are entering into the temple where the tree of life is. And in Revelation 22, we should not be surprised that in Revelation 22, 2, the Apostle John says, on each side of the river, there stood a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, the Apostle John goes on to continue when speaking to the churches, and he says this in foretaste of their salvation. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To he who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What does this mean? To he that overcomes. It means the most fundamental element of worship in a fallen world since the Garden of Eden is our acknowledgement of our sin and our need for a Savior. When John talks about to he that overcomes, he is not talking about us doing enough good to overcome our sinfulness because we can't do that. If I were to go up to any one of you and I were to punch you as hard as I could in the nose and you were bleeding, you know, this is really a violent illustration, you could punch me right back in the nose and that might be your first reaction, wouldn't it? If I punch you really hard, you might think, I'm going I'm to do the same thing back. 
and you could punch me back really hard and my nose could start to bleed. But you know what I've noticed about noses? If you punch me hard after I've punched you hard, the blood flowing down my nose does not heal yours. You still are bleeding. To he who overcomes means we need an overcomer to fix what's wrong with us. And we cannot fix what's wrong with us except apart from the work of what Jesus has done on our behalf. When we sin, what we are really doing is we are forfeiting access to the living God until that sin was dealt with, but we don't have the ability to deal with it on our own. We see this comparison in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 and following, and what we already referenced, when God, after the sin of Adam and Eve, kicked them out of paradise and placed the angels with this weird, hovering, flaming sword, guarding the way back in to immediate and full physical presence of God, the full physical, immediate presence of God. But something beautiful and amazing happens. And it's one last comparison I have for you. In 1 Kings chapter 6, we read of Solomon's temple that when he built it, he built it to specifications and it had this outer court, then it had the inner building. And within the inner building, there was the outer part, the outer room, and there was an inner room called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies sat an ark. And in the ark was said to rest the very presence of God. But when the people of Israel went to worship, and in fact, even when the priests of God went to worship, they could not get into the Holy of Holies. And the interesting part is the Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the temple by a curtain. And in 1 Kings 6, this is all described. And on the curtain, wouldn't you have it, what was embroidered in gold thread were two massive cherubim. I think they were like 10 feet tall, angels. And these angels embroidered in gold on this curtain separated the outer temple, the precincts of the outer temple from the inner temple on the inside, the Holy of Holies, where the very presence of God was. And you know what? Even the priest, high priest, could only get into the Holy of Holies once a year and only on the Day of Atonement which was a special Israelite holiday in which they celebrated their sins being covered. But even when the priest entered, you know what he would have saw? He would have saw the ark. And on the ark, you know what guarded the ark? Were two cherubim, angels, that guarded the presence of God. And on the night when Jesus died, at, the text tells us in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, at the very moment, that Jesus gave up his spirit, we are told that that curtain with those cherubim was rent from top to bottom. And the symbolism is clear that Jesus has now made a way for us to have immediate access to the presence of God. And right here and right now, we have that. We look forward to a day in which present, the immediate access to the presence of God will not only be immediate, but it will be physical. Right now it is immediate and it is spiritual through the spirit of God and his empowerment. But one day when Christ returns, it will be immediate and it will be physical and it will be perfect and it will be forever. 
I want to read to you, and I want you to turn with me to see the symbolism of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. And the reason I bring you here is because Paul puts the relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ in the language of new creation. Let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. It's on page 938 if you're using our blue Bible. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The word reconciliation, I'll pause for just a second, means nothing more than breaking down a wall. That's the imagery of reconciliation. You've got a wall, and you've got a person on each side, and reconciliation just means we tear down that wall so we can have fellowship. What Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5.18 is that Christ's work on the cross has torn down that wall, making it possible for us and God to be in relationship. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him, against them. And he committed to us the message of reconciliation. For we therefore are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At creation, before the fall, humanity had full and immediate access to God physically. After the fall, God intervened immediately and he set to work. N.T. Wright refers to it as God's great rescue mission, making it possible for us to be renewed and re-enter into a relationship with God. But after the fall, before Christ, we had a mediated an incomplete access to God. But when Christ, re- when Christ returns, everything will be set right. But until that time, right here and right now, through the ministry of what Jesus has done for us on the cross for our sins, we have immediate access to God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who resides in somehow in us, guaranteeing to us that one day Christ will return and all things will be made new and all things will be made right. You know, in the same way that an airplane has always been about flying, worship has always been about experiencing the presence of God. And so this morning as we close on this beautiful morning, I want you to think about every time throughout your week and every Sunday when and if you enter into church. Worship is not about whether you like the songs or like the sermon. That helps. Worship has always been and always will be about focusing our minds on the very presence of God. And sometimes Our hearts, as we receive and as we worship, can stunt that process. Sometimes the people leading in worship wish they did it better or sometimes are corrupt. But no matter what the environment, the idea, the concept of worship 
has always been about and always will be about communion with God, experiencing him fully. And whereas the beginning we did it fully and naturally, it does not come natural anymore. But as a result of the work of Christ, we can enter into immediate presence with him once more. And we are guaranteed that we will one day, if we place our faith in the free gift of salvation that Christ offers us, we'll have access immediately to the full physical presence of God in paradise. And so allow that to fill and satisfy your hearts this Sunday morning and this week. Let me pray for you. Father, I'm so grateful for the work that you've done on my behalf and on the behalf of every person in the world to bring them back into relationship with yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that the Spirit of God might work on our hearts to see the beauty of Jesus, to understand him, and to follow him in obedience so that we might enjoy your presence. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.